Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I had the privilege of talking to the legendary two-time Tony-winning composer and lyricist of nine Titanic and many more wonderful shows, Maury Yeston. This past Friday, Maury celebrated his 75th birthday, and in honor of the occasion, P.S. Classics, which was co-founded by Maury's former student Tommy Kasker, released Maury Sings Yeston, an album of over 40 years of demo recordings that Maury made, many of them in elaborate multi-track studio setups, shortly after the specific songs were finished. The album includes some songs that are very different than what ended up in the show, songs from shows that never made it to the stage, and some songs that are nearly identical to the versions that we know and love today. In our conversation, Maury discusses his process of recording the demos and why he felt compelled to allow PS Classics to release them now. He shares the story of the show that was destined to be his big break, only to never materialize, and then in turn actually led to his big break, and much, much more. Both our conversation and the album are incredibly special and insightful, and I highly recommend that you listen to both. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Maury Yeston. First off, happy birthday. Uh, I assume this is not... I assume this is not how you predicted that you would be celebrating your 75th birthday in the middle of a pandemic, but I hope it was... Well, uh, no, well, yeah, nor did I predict that, you know, Tommy Kraska was a freshman at Yale when I was the director of music studies, and, you know, he and David Loud and Ted Sperling and all those people, they were all my freshmen, and I caught them on the counterpoint, and I could not anticipate back there in the early 70s that we would both be old and we'd have a record label... And, and we'd be doing my show. <laughs> it would be it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and great at the same time. Yeah. So how was that? Was it a birthday weekend? How was the whole celebration of the show and all well, those you know, kind of things? Oh, no. You know, at this age, really, you don't make such a big deal. You know, you're just uh, very happy to get up in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's about it. Uh, uh, but well, Tommy and I have been friends for so long, and he had this idea. Uh, because he, he and I go way, way back. I mean, I can just remember Back then, I was just starting to write nine, for example. And sometimes, you know, I would like to be hanging out with some of the, some of my students and say, you know, I just wrote this song. I'd like, you want to hear it? And I'd be going to a practice room and I'd claim something I'd ri- just written. Uh, you know, it could have been an unusual way, for that matter. And so, um, and so we go that far back. And, 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 and Tommy also remembers that. Uh, and then what happened was is that when, when he graduated, I, I gave him the job of being one of the rehearsal pianists at the workshop of nine when we were literally putting the show together. Oh, wow. Uh, and we've known each other ever since. And um, so one of the things that Tommy knows very well is that when I write something, and, you know, even if it's a solo song or even if it's, I love, I, I, I don't like to experience the song by hearing it through my own bone conduction in my head, <laughs> as well as through, through the air. I like to sit there without singing and experience it as somebody who's not singing it because you get more objectivity that way. And so I always go, you know, make a home recording or go into a studio. And especially since I, I you know, I write very chorally and, and very commonly sometimes. Um, and, and because, uh, you know, I right about the time back in the 70s, you could go out and buy a four-track Kiak and, and, and multi, <laughs> multi-track your voice. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles had been doing that. And, and so, um, 
I, I, I would I would do that. And, and, uh, and a number like the Bells of St. Sebastian or the Germans at the Spa or, or, or a lot of the uh, Titanic. Uh, but, and Tommy, of course, has known all these things because through the years we've known each other. And so, um, well, you know, so he's very familiar with all these demos I've done. And some of them, are, uh, you know, I've gone into a studio and they're, they're very cleanly done. Um, uh, you should know that all of these triple and quadruple and, and uh, choral uh, doublings of my voice over the years has, has come to be known uh, in, uh, in, in, in a small circle of musical theater as the Maury Tabernacle Choir. That's <laughs> my. It's always been my name for it. So, Tommy thought it's so interesting, just in terms of getting a, a getting a glimmer in my process. Since so many of these things have been, gone out there in the world now, they've been Broadway shows. They've been all over the world. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be interesting? And he wanted to do this as a kind of a birthday celebration uh, to uh, to take you know, a slew of these really interesting, terrific demos and put them out and, uh, and call it Maury Sings Yesterday. And I said, that's fine. You know, uh, one of the things is, as you know, I also taught to be in my music theater workshop for about 25 years. And so, you know, just as anything I can do to help and encourage young writers to learn how to write. And one of the things is you see the process by which you've written something one way, but the time it's on the stage, you change it yeah. for whatever reason. And so... For, for all of those reasons, I thought, well, that's a great idea, particularly that it's not a very expensive record to do because we already have all the demos. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, and that's what's so that's what's so interesting about it, this this album. And as I listened to it over the weekend, it's so beautiful and at times chilling to hear these songs that we know so well from the original cast albums. Every one of those things I had literally just written, it, probably within within three days to a week. It's amazing yeah. to hear the the germ of what they would become, and and it's such a piece of musical yeah. theater history. In addition to just a great album, I mean, it's something that is, uh, you know, a, a truly a historic piece of of musical, you know, preservation. Yeah, and interestingly enough, I find I find what's interesting is not only how the rewrites came, but how much of the original complexity of 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 the arrangement still exists in the orchestration mm-hmm. and in many cases the, the choral parts and how the show turned out. Dan Sebastian has hardly changed at all from that. Yeah. And, and, and so, and some of the others, um, for example, uh, well, the one, I think my favorite is um, the Barrett song because Peter Stone and I were writing Titanic and, and uh, we, we loved writing it together. And so we knew we have to figure out, we have to, we have to tell the audience why it sank and what ha- why why did that happen? And so we knew that there were these three characters who could give us a lot of information. There was Stoker, he was down there knowing they were going too fast. And then there was the there was the radio operator and he knew that he could the SOS wasn't being heard because but until the Titanic sank, uh ships used to turn it off at night and the guy went to sleep. And and the lookout guy, he knew that he couldn't see anything because there was no moon that night and and, and um and so we decided Somehow we had this surrealistic idea that while on the ship, we would hear the sound of a gavel, knock, 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 and the calling of a witness. And back there on the Titanic, historically, the witness would be testifying at the inquiry, right, uh, uh, after, in the future, after the ship sank, explaining why he thought they were going too fast. And it sounded crazy, 
but we loved it, and, and we wrote it that way. And and obviously, I, I did the demo that way. I had yeah. um, the man who was going to be Brian Darcy James comes, and he's the witness. And we did it for all three characters. And then when Richard Jones came into the picture, um, he said to Peter, he said, you know, I, I think it's fascinating, but I think we'd better just jump on the ship and just great melodrama all the way through. And I think we should cut those inquiries. And Peter, he never cut anything. He hated cutting. Peter Stone, I, I, on, 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 <laughs> on my sainted grandmother, Peter Stone would say, even if you asked him to cut a syllable, he would always say, but that's the only reason I wrote the show. <laughs> <laughs> that one bit, that one thing that was, is the only thing that yeah, matters. That, that's the only reason I wrote the show. But in any case, and Peter somehow said yes. And I swear to God, and, and until the last conversation we ever had, Peter would say at some point in the conversation, you know, if we ever do the show in London, we should put back an inquiry. <laughs> but in any case, so I think it's fascinating uh, that that version of it. And in a strange way, as a radio play, it, it, it yeah. kind of uh, it's compelling. His Majesty's inquiry into the sinking of RMS Titanic on April the 15th, 1912. We'll now come to order. Call the first witness, Mr. Barrett. Mr. Frederick Barrett. Aye, sir. Mr. Barrett, you were stoker aboard the Titanic the first day out. What were the conditions in the engine room, sir? There was fire in the hold and the men drew back fire, Mr. Barrett? Yes, sir. And boiler room five at the bottom of one of the coal bunkers. Smoldering it was, sir. Near impossible to put out. Was that of great concern to the officers? No, sir. It was well contained. Are you saying it wasn't dangerous? Not really, sir. But the men took it as something of a bad omen. Mr. Barrett, we are interested in obtaining the actual engine speed of Titanic, beginning that first day out. What were the conditions, Mr. Barrett? There was fire in the hold and the men drew back. There was fire in the hold and the men drew back. And the dust of the coal in the air was black and a trickle of sweat ran down your back. And then the, uh, there are two things about the, uh, about, uh, the, the captain's table. One is that the first draft was sitting at the captain's table. And so, uh, and that was the number that was supposed to go in the show. And when I heard it, when we did it in our workshop, you know, the, the desire was let's show them all having the best of everything in the world, the best hotels, the best places to go, you know, uh, all of the artists and historical things of the time. But, but one of the things that the number didn't have is, um, is in, and when it's in the show, Everybody settling, uh, and particularly the owner of the ship, steadily badgering the captain, captain, why aren't we going faster? And so I wrote a different number called What a Remarkable Age, which mm. tells all the same things about the new inventions going on, and parachutes been invented, a man invents a kind of film, he calls it cellophane, you, you can see through it, uh, but at the time we could interrupt it with the captain being badgered. And so I thought, well, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's put that original, and then of course the the ragtime, uh, when I first wrote it, I wrote it as a ragtime. And only when, as we developed the book, we realized that um, Vicki Clark, uh, who, who played uh, a middle-class woman, kept trying to, uh, to uh, jump into and crash the first-class uh, ragtime scene. <laughs> I, I had to change it, and, and so I you know, rewrote the number to accommodate that. So I think those who were interested in... Uh, how these things develop, we'll find lots of lots of stuff like that in these demos, but then find other things that are literally note for note and word for word 
from the moment they kind of sprang out of my head and my hand uh, to to whoever's doing it now, you know, somewhere in Japan or uh, in Peoria, hasn't changed a note. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, but I, I'm very I'm very glad we did it because you really do get a sense of how people create shows and 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 put them together. And it's kind of very exciting. Yeah, and I always love. I've said this before when other albums have come out like this, but I love hearing songs that are performed by the composers because it gives you kind of that original authenticity that whatever it becomes, whoever ends up singing it, um, generally, and no offense, present company, of course, excluded, generally sung by more talented singers. Um, but it is such a different experience to hear the person who wrote it, who has it in their bones uh, to sing that song. And what I think is great about this is that there are some songs on this album or on this double album that have never really been heard before. I mean, there are obviously you oh, mentioned right. some of the ones, you know, unusual way, which is, you know, an anthem that I can't not hear Laura Benanti's voice when I hear that from the revival. But there are some songs that honestly, as much as I love your, your work, I've never even heard of the song before. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a show that didn't get on. The queen of Basin Street didn't get on. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and and that was the one that was supposed to. It was Mike Nichols directing. It was Jay Allen, Jay Preston Allen, who had written the Prime Minister Gene Brody and who had written the screenplay to the film of Cabaret and 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 Tommy Toon and Alan Carr, the great impresario, who my God Almighty, he, you know, he had discovered Olivia Newton John and he had produced Grease, the movie, and you know, and and what happened was they didn't they didn't have a score, and. I, and when Tommy told me, I said, it's my favorite movie in the world, Tommy. I'll, <laughs> let me work on spec. Let me write six songs. And I, and I wrote about six songs, and we had a big meeting uh, in, in New York, and they literally tied me to the furniture. They said, Mike said, this is, this is going to be, this is just putting it in New Orleans. This is hilarious. This is going to be wonderful. And, and I, I resigned my professorship at Yale for a year without pay to do the show. And and uh, and what happened was is that they were so convinced that this was going to be the most remunerative thing in the history of Broadway. All of those four people could not make a deal. And here I was, wow. this little professor from New Haven. My son was seven years old. You know, I so I would I thought I'd forego my pay for a year and do the show. And and actually the show fell apart because they couldn't make a deal in the summer of 1981. And there I was for the rest of the year with no Lacage nothing to do. And, you know, I had those songs and uh, nothing is ever wasted. You know, if you write something, it doesn't get on. So you find one day, five years later, you're doing another show and you, you have a trunk. But what happened was is that around about October, I was having a cup of coffee with Tommy and he looked at me. He had nothing to do either. And he said, let's do nine. Wow. And by, by December, we were in workshop for nine. And nine opened in, 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 on May the 9th. And we won all the Tonys on June the 9th. <laughs> June the 10th. What an amazing year. Like yeah. What a crazy year. And so, but, but you know, um, family and friends uh, always talk about... Um, that that show that, that that score that took place in New Orleans. In fact, when Gerard Alessandrini did this review, anything could happen in the theater. Uh, we put two of the, three of the songs 
yeah, three of the songs from uh, from the Queen of Basin Street in that show, uh, and uh, uh, you all will be able to hear that on the Morrison Justin. Um, so, so it's you know it's a it's a it's a musical biography, but what what, what it really is is um, I guess the last four years of the life of a writer, and and, and the process the process of writing, and since I write so completely in terms of the piano part, which really does instruct the orchestration and how that goes, and uh, and the choral arrangement, you really can see uh, the connection between the first idea, just between three days or a week after it's just been written in its complete state, and how it ends up on your cast album years later. Yeah, it's it's a really remarkable journey to kind of go through these songs and, and these shows. And what's great about the album for people who don't know the the album is organized so that there's four to five or so songs um, from That's most right. of the shows, and they're together. So it opens with nine, That's then right. goes to the Queen of Basin Street, then Death Takes a Holiday, which is a, an amazing score that I've I've loved for yeah. almost a decade now. Um, for you, as you listen to these things. How long has it been since maybe you've either, obviously I'm sure some of the, the demos themselves you haven't heard in a long time, but how often do you vi- revisit some of these older songs that maybe, you know, they, that aren't Nine or or Titanic or something like that? How long has it well, been since you've heard them? Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of them get done, people do them. In other words, you know, the, the Maury Essen songbook and then the Laura Osnes album and, and then also uh, cast albums. I mean, there are there are maybe 11, nine cast albums. Uh, there are five in English, but then there's Polish, German, French, <laughs> Japanese. And so I hear them in different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice to hear Barbara Streisand sing in a usual way. Um, and, and, and so I do, I, I do hear them often, but there are some that are just, some, I still play them. You know, I just, I, I really? you know, I, they, they keep, yeah, they, they, they keep my fingers moving and, uh, and, and I'm trying to think, I guess there are a few of them that, uh, I haven't sort of heard in, in a long time. Uh, I loved writing Goya for, for Placido. Yeah. Um, but frankly, I prefer my demos to the album that already yeah. that had been produced because yeah, for me, the album is overproduced and they spent the fortune and they got Gloria Stefan and they got big orchestras and stuff like that. But for me, um, because, you know, I was very passionate about the politics about Goya because he was such a great man and such a great Democrat. And, and he, he painted uh, extraordinary things in, in the history of Spain. For me, I actually prefer just me singing it with a piano because it's about the message and the meaning that I wanted to convey uh, without any frills. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there, there's some of my there's some of my favorite tracks on 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 this album. Uh, and, uh, and and so you know, it's uh, you all of your all of the things that you that you've written, they're all your children, you know, and, or, and your grandchildren. And uh, but the truth is, is that what I'm most excited about, obviously, is the thing that I wrote this morning or yesterday. And uh, I'm still very forward thinking. And you know, right now I'm writing. Well, just finishing up. One, the Lady Eve uh, that I'm writing with uh, a wonderful uh, book writer named Sandy Rustin, and uh, and uh, plowing ahead with my musical based on the story of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is incredibly inspiring. Wow! Uh, how, how could it not be? Yeah. Not to mention the fact that you know, unlike Titanic, 
We build a bridge. <laughs> it doesn't shake. <laughs> Much different ending for that one than, uh, than with Titanic. Completely, very uplifting ending, literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no icebergs in that one. Um, no, no. So, so I, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask. I mean, with the yeah. fact that the last eight, nine months or whatever have been so difficult for so many people, but especially for artists and especially theater artists who, unlike yeah. TV and film, have kind of they've kind of slowly gotten back. Theater is still kind of what waiting. Can you do? Yeah, I mean, right. what have you? Well, that's literally the question. Well, what can you do? Well, what have you done? Well, well, for, first of all, we need to support each other. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm writing all the time. And, you know, it means a lot to me that, I, you know, when I have something that needs to be put in finale, that they're, you know, they're a band of people who are all musicians, and I'm able to make work for them, which, which, is, mm-hmm. which is really very important. And we're, we're all doing that uh, and, 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 and helping each other. Uh, that's the first thing. Second of all, I, I find that um, I had... I had a composition teacher. He actually ended up with the Pulitzer Prize, and I'll never forget uh, the first thing in the first class we did up at, up in college. He looked at the class and he said, "You know, there's sometimes when you should be composing, and sometimes when you shouldn't be." And we looked at him like he was crazy. And then he said, "Sometimes you have to let the well fill up again." Hmm. And I think that that this has been, and I've spoken to a lot of actors and writers. This is a kind of opportunity. You know, when we just go day by day, you know, uh, open call, open call, open call, casting call, rehearsal, do that. We never get a chance to think about our motivation, to think about, uh, do we simply do anything habitually? Should we be thinking about our technique again? And this has been an opportunity for a lot of people to just think about their process and improving it and, and, and think about their relationship to their art form. So in many ways, I find it interesting. So many people I talk, so many actors I talk to are so forward thinking and so positive that they are using this as an opportunity to contemplate, you know, is this what I want to do? Is that what I want to focus on? Do I want to do more comedy? Do I want to, do I want to do voiceover? In other words, it's, it's kind of a wonderful thing that way. And I also think that it's going to transform our industry. And, and, and I think it is because I don't know when it's going to be possible for there to be a financial model in which we have to fill every other seat, which means it's half the seats and that you're selling half the tickets until we find, until we can sit next, next yeah. to each other again. And, and not only that, but, but a, a, a project that is going to keep going to run a very long time. So I guess that means that anybody who has a $15 million show probably isn't going to get into a Broadway theater because yep. they can't fill all the seats, and is and is it going to is it going to close after six months? So maybe at least in the immediate future, we'll be seeing very commercial pieces on stage, and that means that that our theater, our theater process, for me, is going to be an incredible opportunity for smaller shows and smaller venues that are that are maximally imaginative and interesting. And since I know the explosion of young talent that's in New York, I think we're going to see an incredible renaissance of, of innovation in theatrical productions. Uh, I, I believe that with all my heart. And I, and I think that's, I really look forward to it. You know, I, and, uh, and I think that we're going to come out of this period. I think we're going to come roaring back. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited about it. 
even we're at the bottom now. I mean, it can't get much worse than this, can it? Mm-mm. But all I see is how we're going to come back. Uh, I guess it's kind of a kind of a very Broadway kind of way of thinking about it, right? <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> every Broadway show is, you know, expresses one way or another, you know, hope against incalculable odds. That's what the stories generally are. Yeah. Whether it's a flower girl who wants to have a flower shop, you know, yeah. <laughs> or whether it's a, a slave who wants to have his freedom. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, uh, I also think a lot of the writers have been given an opportunity to uh, have more time to write than they ordinarily wouldn't have had. And, uh, and there's a lot of brilliant writing going on right now, uh, and I think a very good way. Um, so um, I, I, think, I think it's a mixed bag. In America, more than other places, I mean, I have an opening in Japan in November. And, oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. Other, well, you know, other countries, sure. smaller yeah, countries, yeah. they were... They, they were proactive very early. And because of that, yeah. you know, it, it, it's possible. I mean, the Koreans never even actually closed their theaters because yeah. they did contact tracing right away. And, and you know, and, um, but, uh, but I, I think that uh, obviously we're going to need a vaccine. But, you know, Broadway, Broadway's Broadway. And, and it, it's, it's going to survive and it's going to flourish. Uh, and I think that's probably true of the West End theaters. Although I was talking to Gerard Allison the other day, I've, I've known Gerard ever since he was very young in the BMI, and he is the funniest man in the world. So we were talking about the fact that the West End theaters are very old, and because of that, people are really close together. And then Gerard said, "You know, the West End theaters are so old, you're in danger of getting the Spanish influenza." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Good point, Gerard. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a good point. Yeah. Um, so I hope I hope that folks enjoy this album, um, and uh, you certainly uh, will get a sense of, uh, I guess, the creative process. And if there's any of these shows that you particularly enjoyed, you'll see you'll see how they came yeah. to be, you know. And you and you'll see, I guess, somewhere in it is the investment of the excitement of having found a new found a new idea, because this. this the period of discovery is there is there in the performance. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. And and that's what I, I, I'll wrap up on this question. When I think of your work, I think of things that are rich and, and complex and nuanced and kind of listening to this album. I just got this sense of, joy and excitement not just from your voice but from just the the way that you you sing them and it it is it was so kind of rejuvenating uh for me to listen to when we haven't really heard new things we haven't seen we've seen you know zoom performances and video, virtual performances but there yeah. was something very exciting and nourishing in listening to this album i just yeah. wondered what what do you feel when you're writing a song and then recording a demo for the first time? It's what is the that? Appearance, it's the brilliance of my discovery. Yeah. Of it. It's the joy of having done it and having that, it's, and having had that moment of saying, wow, I, I wouldn't be recording this if I didn't think I, I, you know, I didn't love it. If I didn't think, wow, <laughs> yeah. this is great. And so you're getting to hear it before the self, before the self doubt comes in. <laughs> it eventually you know, comes then, I take it. Before a month later when I when I say, Oh, you know, I, I well I can't show that to the world. That's 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 the worst thing I've ever written. But see, <laughs> so you're you're hearing it the moment 
I'm fooling myself into thinking, wow, this is really good. <laughs> so, no, I, I think it, it's absolutely the joy, the joy of having created something that is really, that you're, you're the only audience and, and something in you isn't embarrassed to show it to the world by first showing it to yourself. And, and all, all of us who write things don't go through that moment of joy. You know, I would, I'd like, you know, I'd like to think that, um, when, when Stephen Sondheim wrote, you know, everybody ought to have a maid that he hmm. just jumped for joy and went, this is such a, this is such a fun song. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, 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 I, and don't forget, I've seen it because I came into the V of my workshop in the very earliest days. There was me, Alan Menken. Alan had just got, graduated from NYU. Ed Kleban was there. And Ed would come in and play some things that he was just writing for a clothes line wow. for the class. And you could hear Ed, you know, singing those songs. And it was so baffled and it was so good. We knew it was going to be a massive hit hearing him sing it and, 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 Oh, that's when it was in that class too. And so, I, look, I, I'll tell you, I remember when, when Lehman died and I took over that class. I'll never forget when, when, when Bobby Lopez came in with Jeff Marks with puppets and they started to play Avenue Q and everybody was, everybody was looking and everybody was thinking, puppets on Broadway? Who's going to pay $315 to see puppets on Broadway? And then they sang Fine, Fine Line which was just a great world-class ballad, or, you know, everyone's a little bit racist. And so, and, and the, the sort of joy and happiness of pulling something off like that. And I think, you know, if this was any one of those writers showing you their performance right at the moment they had created it and felt it was good enough not to be embarrassed to show to people, you'll hear that ebullience in the performance. And so I think... Uh, one thing I do here too is um, the, just the positive energy of of, uh, of I guess forty years of my life, uh, and uh, and that's one of the reasons I think that's one of the reasons Tommy wanted to to sort of uh, put it all out there, uh, you know, on two albums as a uh, as a way of memorializing uh, all the time he and I have known each other and spent together and worked together. Yeah. Well, like I said, it is an absolutely uh, brilliant album and such a time capsule um, for a piece of musical theater that I think people who love the art form are are going to want to just devour this uh, album. Wow. Maury, Maury sings Yes in the demos. I, I loved it. Um, and I'm very glad that this came out into the world, not only just in general, but now uh, in this specific moment. And uh, timed with your birthday last week so thank you again for taking the time to, time to talk about this thank oh. you for the album and, and happy birthday and uh, continued thank health and, and good luck with all the projects that you're working on you too now alright bye bye in a very unusual way one time I needed you in a very unusual way you were my Friend. Maybe it lasted a day, maybe it lasted an hour, but somehow it will never end. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. Of course, we will have information on how you can purchase Maury Sings Yeston in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to the legendary Maury Yeston, Dan Fortune, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, in the middle of your life, anything can happen. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. You don't know what you do to me. You don't have a clue. You can't tell what it's like to be me looking at you. Scares me so that I can hardly speak.